will be talking about spiritual warfare this morning as we continue our series on our ancient foe. And the scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word for his people today. May the Spirit give us ears to hear what he desires to say to the church. Before we go on to consider our text together this morning, I want to call your attention to a couple of verses at the end of the book of Acts and one cryptic remark that was right at the end of the section of Scripture that I just read from Ephesians chapter 6. Acts 28, verse 16, describes Paul's arrival in Rome as a prisoner. If you remember when we were studying the book of Acts, most of the last section of that book, Paul is making his way from Jerusalem to Rome so that he can have that interview with Caesar, but he is doing that as a prisoner under guard. There's actually that point in the story where he is on board a ship which is run aground, and the Roman soldiers who are part of that cohort that is guarding him want to put him and all of the other prisoners on board the ship to death. Paul was a prisoner when he arrived in Rome, and Acts chapter 28 verse 16 describes his arrival. Luke says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. And then, in an ironic little comment on that, he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So what Luke is really getting at is that Paul was not put into a dungeon like he and Silas were put into at Philippi. He was put into a home where he could live under house arrest, but 24 hours a day, he was chained to a Roman soldier who was responsible to make sure that Paul didn't disappear before the day came for his interview with the emperor. So by himself, according to Luke, but not really by himself. And in the final verses of Acts chapter 28, we're told he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the Apostle Paul, probably around 60 years of age at this point, was living under house arrest, responsible 
for his own living. He had to make sure that somebody was providing food and taking care of him. And it's in that situation that he asked for prayer in Ephesians chapter 6, asking for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now it's from all of those texts taken together that we've arrived at the conclusion that Ephesians was one of what we call the prison epistles. It was a letter that had been written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. And it just leaves us with questions. Acts ends abruptly, saying Paul stayed there for two years. We don't know what happened after the two years. These letters are clearly written during the time that Paul is in prison, but we're not given any further information in Scripture about how long that imprisonment lasted, whether it ended after the two years, whether it ended with him being released and then taken back into custody later and put to death, or if it ended after two years when he was put to death. Now, the short answer to the questions that this might raise is, as Stephen Miller wrote in Christian History magazine, we don't know. The New Testament doesn't tell us. Acts ends with a cliffhanger. Paul, under arrest in Rome while awaiting trial, what happens next, the writer didn't say. Perhaps he figured his readers knew. And Miller goes on, Christians, in fact, did know. Early Christian writers unanimously agree that Paul was martyred in Rome. The first person who we know put that into writing was a Roman bishop by the name of Clement, writing to the Corinthian church in roughly AD 96, about 30 years after Paul's execution. The closest we come to an answer in Scripture, though, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, where Paul wrote to the one-time pastor of the church at Ephesus, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Imagine this coming from a person who was 60, which was, seems younger all the time somehow. I turned 60 this past summer. But it was very, very old in those days. And Paul had lived a very hard life, being shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead. We're going to read a little bit more about that later on. And so here's this old man writing, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his, appe his appearing. Now he follows that up. He, he writes that, and he follows it with what you could only describe as kind of a plaintive appeal, writing to Timothy, his true son in the faith. He says, do your best to come to me soon. And there are some things that he wants Timothy to bring. He wants him to bring a cloak that he had left at Troas. He wants him to bring the parchments. He wants to have this garment to help him stay warm and the word of God to encourage him in his imprisonment and exile. But he wants it soon because clearly at the time when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he believed that his days were numbered. Once again, Stephen Miller wrote in that same article, Paul was probably beheaded with a sword. That's what church tradition teaches us, and it makes sense. That was the quick method of execution that was granted to Roman citizens. 
when they were found guilty of something deserving death. Non-citizens would have received the more lingering and painful death of crucifixion. And of course, the very fact that Paul was in Rome because he had appealed to Caesar highlights the fact that he used his Roman citizenship to get to that point. It makes sense that they would have executed him with a sword. Regardless of the timing and the method and how this all turned out, we know that it was during his imprisonment under house arrest, literally chained to a Roman soldier who was guarding him, that the aging apostle wrote to the church at Ephesus describing himself as an ambassador in chains. It was in that very same context that he wrote Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now the thing about this verse, Ephesians 6 verse 12, is that some people get so wrapped up in the idea that this passage is essentially only about the nature of the enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and powers. Oh my. Volumes have been written about this, often focusing far more on Satan and his demons and their methods of oppressing and, and possessing people than they do on the victory of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I have a book on the shelf in my office that's actually thicker than most of the Bibles that I have, and it's, it's called A Handbook for Spiritual Warfare. I, I thought maybe I should just take the dust cover off that and put it on a Bible, because that's really the only handbook for spiritual warfare that anyone needs. But this text that Paul wrote saying, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, was written by a man who was most likely chained to a scribe while he dictated the letter to another person who, who or chained to a soldier while he dictated the letter to a scribe. So I point this out to highlight the fact that the Apostle Paul was well aware that even though our struggle is ultimately against cosmic powers over this present darkness, that doesn't mean that flesh and blood are not involved in the fight. We've noted already in this series on several occasions, the Heidelberg Catechism makes this point in Lord's Day 52, when we are taught that our sworn enemies the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. So right there, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but as a matter of fact, we kind of do. Our own flesh never stops attacking us. The same is true of the world which, in which we live and the institutions in that world that could be described as principalities and powers. Think for just a moment about one of the more well-known incidents of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, and if that doesn't right away make, oh, I know what that one's about, you'll know in just a minute. David, God's anointed servant at that point, found himself engaged in spiritual warfare. 
The thing is, he was engaged in spiritual warfare with an opponent who is described as a champion who went out from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, so roughly nine and a half feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat of, was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That means, by the way, in case you're not up on your ancient units of measurement, that Goliath's mail shirt weighed 125 pounds just all by itself. Not only that, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung beneath his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, so big. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's only 15 pounds. If you've ever swung a 10-pound sledgehammer for a while, or even a 5-pound sledgehammer, imagine 15 pounds of iron spear on the end of a beam that most of us would probably struggle just to pick up. This was David's opponent in this spiritual warfare. Imagine the strength of a man who's not able to, only able to pick it up. He can, he can wield this against his enemies. This is the kind of weapon that you just sort of swing around in a circle and it takes out everybody who's getting anywhere close to you. This was an attack of the world against God's covenant people. Five times in the course of this story, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it is emphasized that day after day, this warrior came down into the valley of Elah to defy the armies of the living God. And why do I call this spiritual warfare? Here's why. Because anyone who may defy the Lord of hosts, whether or not it is a conscious action or just something that they are doing, thinking that they are motivated in some other way, anyone who would defy the Lord of hosts is acting as a front for the evil one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And just as an aside, clearly then, not all religions lead to the right place and not all spiritualities are benevolent and good. We're going to be talking more about this on another week. But really, Jesus was getting at it when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way of salvation. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If we do not approach God through faith in Christ, we are not approaching God at all. So Goliath, as an idolatrous Philistine, was not only a physical champion, but he was an emissary of the spiritual forces of evil. Ultimately, the devil himself was behind the attack on Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This was spiritual warfare, but it was fought between flesh and blood men in the valley of Elah. If you need more proof, consider what David said to Goliath as he ran out to engage the enemy. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 to 47, he said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to you with five smooth stones and a sling. No. 
I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And here's why. David says, I will do this that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, this army of Israel may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Right there, the battle is the Lord's. That's what makes this spiritual warfare. What makes it spiritual warfare is David's recognition that in the end, this battle and many other battles that he would fight throughout the course of his life were less about who he was against and more about who he was for and indeed who was for him. We could only wish that the giant killer had remembered some years later when his own flesh attacked him to do the same thing, but in that case he committed adultery and went on to murder a friend to cover it up. The world, the flesh, and the devil never cease attacking us. Even so, Paul wrote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But he's not saying that flesh and blood are not involved. The chain that holds Paul was real. The soldier who guarded him was a flesh and blood human being, as was the official who ordered his imprisonment and the executioner who ultimately removed his head from his body. Now, doubtless, through that whole time of his imprisonment, Paul was under assault by spiritual forces. The devil never stops attacking us. You can imagine being chained to a Roman soldier and awaiting an interview with a Caesar who, if it's the one we think it was, was pretty well known to be stark raving mad, wondering how that's going to go and whether or not you're going to end up being executed, that sitting in that house, Satan would have been working at him, at his emotions and, and so many other aspects spiritually as well, but the truth is, throughout the long history of God's people, both in and out of Scripture, whenever Satan is attacking, whenever God's people are being engaged in spiritual warfare, flesh and blood has always been involved in the battle too. If nothing else, our own flesh and blood. On this Reformation Sunday, we might remember that this was also true for Martin Luther. When we read the story of his life and ministry, we're reminded of Paul's description of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, that's Paul. But if you go through a biography of Martin Luther, you will find every one 
of the things that Paul listed there. Even in the last two weeks of his life, he had to make a journey. And that journey involved crossing a river on a ferry, and there were these large chunks of ice coming down the river, and they didn't know if they were going to get across. Everything that Paul describes happened to Luther, and I think this is exactly the sort of thing that Martin Luther had in mind when he wrote the line, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Now, there's no question that Martin Luther believed in the reality of the cosmic forces over this present darkness. Martin Luther believed in a real, personal devil. He believed that Satan was out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he believed that there were demons working with Satan in that enterprise. But it's clear in the course of his life, these spiritual forces of evil most often engage the battle in very earthy and unspiritual ways. It is this world that threatens to undo us. Yes, this world with devils filled, but it is this world that threatens to undo us. Think back to our study of Revelation. Remember the description of that serpent of old called the devil and Satan in Revelation chapter 12? John wrote there of spiritual warfare, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's a description of a spiritual battle of warfare that took place in the heavens. But Matthew gives us a look of what that spiritual battle looked like here on the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth because he wanted to destroy her child. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. See, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There was war in heaven. And this was about the dragon trying to destroy the child. But meanwhile, on earth, real soldiers were dispatched by a very human king to that peaceful little town of Bethlehem. And those real soldiers drug infants and toddlers from their mother's arms and murdered them in the street to satisfy the rage of the evil one and of Herod, who was a very evil king. There's spiritual warfare going on in a realm that we cannot see, but that actually works itself out in the physical world in ways that we can see. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And I don't doubt for a second that the hearts of those mothers and fathers who had seen their children impaled on the swords of Herod's soldiers would have resonated with the idea that this world with devils filled does threaten to undo us. So Paul wrote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but in another place, 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, he puts that into perspective. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, we do live in this world. We do walk in the flesh. We are physical creatures in a physical world, but we recognize even when this world threatens to undo us, there is a power behind the throne. It's in that spiritual realm that the real war is waged. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In the Valley of Elah, a shepherd chose to fight the warrior champion of the Philistines with no more than five smooth stones and a sling. He did not do that to give us a nice story about an underdog who fought City Hall and won or about the little guy who took on the giants and overcame or some such nonsense. He did it to show us that the battle is the Lord's. That whoever we think we're struggling against, we're really struggling not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And the battle ultimately is the Lord's. And we can stand strong in his strength. And we can fight with the weapons and the armor that he has given, the whole armor of God, as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 6 or here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we do so because our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. But to this day, regardless of the arena in which it may play out, whether it's playing out in society, in the political realm, whether it's playing out in the quiet of our own home as we struggle with various things there. Wherever this battle plays out, the battle is the Lord's. That's what makes it spiritual warfare. The recognition that in the end, for us, as surely as for David, the shepherd king, or for Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, or for Martin Luther, the theologian and reformer, our battles, whatever they may be, is less about who we are against, because that really doesn't matter. It is more about who we are for and who is for us. Because if God is for us, we'll read in just a moment, who can be against us? It doesn't matter. Satan himself and all the hosts of hell in all of the ways that they find to tempt and test and try and struggle against the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ. If God is for us, then what does it matter ultimately who we are against? Stephen Nichols has written of Martin Luther's death and legacy. Just before he died, Luther preached what would be his last sermon from his deathbed in Eisleben. The sermon consisted of simply quoting two texts, one from the Psalms and one from the Gospels. 
Luther first cited Psalm 68, 19, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then he cited John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was his last sermon on the day that Martin Luther died. Nichols concluded by saying, our God is indeed a God of salvation, and that salvation comes through the work of his son. But I want to conclude with those words that I alluded to a moment ago from Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? And if you go back and look at what Paul was talking about before he said that, it's what shall we say to the fact that our God is a God of salvation who daily bears us up, who has made us his own. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.